Hi, this is Robert Furrow and this is TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe. The Bible tells us that God's Word is inspired and profitable for correction, for doctrine, for uh, that we would be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast at. You're going to get our full-length teachings. You're going to get our shorter hot topics, which is just that. We take things that are a little controversial or difficult topics and we put something together for that. And then you're also going to get our Q&A. And in our Q&A, you can ask questions about scripture. You can ask questions about uh, apologetics, hard questions, Christian living, uh, things that you may be facing and going through. I'm not saying that I've got all of the answers, but as a pastor for 40 years, I at least have the resources to be able to go in and look things up. Sometimes I'm asked questions that I don't feel like I answer properly and I want to come back and cover them a little bit later on. I've got one like that now that uh, we were asked a little, bit, a little while ago about hell being in the center of the earth and using the passage out of Luke where you have Abraham's comfort and the rich man there and I just didn't feel like I answered it sufficiently. So if one of you guys has a question about that at this podcast or the next one, uh, we can go ahead and get into that. But our first question today is one that we have prepared and that is, does the Bible condone slavery? It's uh, an area that atheists and critics love to attack the Bible on, to attack God, to attack scripture, that we so know that owning another person is wrong. And Christians know that better than anybody else. We know that everybody is created in the image of God. That's why in the Old Testament, there was capital punishment if you killed someone because you killed someone who was created in God's image. And that's why an animal being killed doesn't hold the same penalty as a human being killed. And so we believe that more than any, that you can't own someone and that slavery is wrong. And they'll attack the, uh, the Bible. If someone doesn't know the scriptures really well, then they can begin to feel like, wow, I don't know. Does the Bible condone slavery? It obviously talks about slaves in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, uh, Paul talked about the way that a slave, once he got saved, would interact with his master as if he was serving God. Jesus never outright condoned slavery. So all of these questions make people go, is, does the Bible condone slavery? So I want to pull up um, some notes and scriptures that I have here so that I can share with you on this. And that is, first of all, that kidnapping, excuse me, let me get this done right. Go away. Ha! <laughs> done. There we go. All right. So first of all, that kidnapping was condoned, was condemned in the Bible. Kidnapping was condemned in the Bible and for the sake of slavery as well. Uh, there's a couple of passages. First of all, Ezekiel 21.16 says, he who kidnaps a man and sells him. So that's, that's what's called chattel slavery. The word chattel is not connected to cattle, as some people think. It's connected to property. When you had chattel slavery, people became your property. And so if you kidnap a man to sell him, you're selling someone as property. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand. So even if you buy him and you now have a kidnapped person in your hand as your property, as your slave, it says, shall surely be put to death. So God 
condemned kidnapping for the purposes of slavery. So, you can't have chattel slavery or antebellum slavery in the Old Testament. There's nothing at all like it. I'll give you another passage for you here and uh, this one is 1 Timothy 9 and 10. So, this is the New Testament. Knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless, for the insubordinate, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for the unholy, for the profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. So, not only does the Old Testament condemn kidnapping for the purpose of slavery, but the New Testament condemns it as well. So, there's no way that they could argue that slavery in the Old Testament in under the law was anything like the slavery around uh, during the, the antebellum period in the United States or overseas. Um, in, in the 1750s, slavery was ended in Britain and other places and we'll talk about that here in just a moment. The second thing was that you could become a slave by choice. You could, and, and we'll clear up the idea of what you're really getting from the individual is their service. They're not becoming your property. And this is really important. So, here in Exodus 21, 5 and 6, it says, but if a servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He will also bring him to the door of a doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. So, you are choosing to become a bond servant. Note that he loves his master and we're going to see in a little while that he didn't have rights over him like what they had uh, in, again, chattel slavery uh, and a man could not be, uh, could sell himself into slavery. If he was indebted or he needed money, it says in Leviticus uh, 25, 39 through 41, and if one of your brethren who dwells among you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. He's not a slave, but as a hired servant. So, what you're getting from this individual is their service. You're hiring them. What belongs to you is their work not them. You do not have a slave. It says it right here in Leviticus. It says, as a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. So, that was six years. The most you could be a slave is six years and the year of Jubilee could come up before that. And he shall depart from you, he and his children with him and shall return to his own family. He shall return to the possessions of the fathers. Now, there's a passage in Exodus that says that when a man leaves, he can't take, if he had his wife and children before he was in slavery, then he can take them with him. But if he got them while he was in slavery, he can't take them with him. This obviously is different. And so, people say, well, this is a contradiction in the Bible. Exodus says he can't take them with him. Leviticus says he can. This is a God made conditions in the law like he permitted divorce, but Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart, God permitted it. So, it wasn't what God wanted, but he was making provisions for the things that men would do because we are not perfect and sinful. And I think that God was moving forward as time was going on. Slavery was a common thing in the Old Testament world and God was bringing us to the point where we would be moved to no longer allow slavery in any way, shape or form. A servant was not to be a servant forever. They were let go in the year of Jubilee. 
he was a hired servant and not a slave. The servant was not uh, to be sent away poor. Here's a really important point. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from the flock and from the flesh threshing floor and from the wine press, from what the Lord your God blessed you with, you shall give him. So you were to be generous when the year of Jubilee came and you were to send out your, your indentured servant and give him things. This is nothing like the slavery that you found in the world that is so hideous and horrible. Then um, the goal of Jesus was to bring salvation and then to reform a society. Now, by this, what I mean is that Jesus wanted to save people. And so he didn't condemn slavery. Instead, he talked about how to be right with God and how to be saved and how to be born again. And therefore, if a slave, even in bad slavery, and certain parts of Roman slavery were really bad, maybe they didn't have the ability to change society at that point. Maybe the time wasn't right. Maybe they couldn't rebel against it. And so God just wanted them to get saved as a slave and to live their lives that they could live with their serving their master as unto the Lord. He's not saying in any way, shape, or form by not condemning it that it is okay. And when a master gets saved, then he would learn that you've got to treat people right. And there's no bond or free, uh, there's no slave or free man. There's no uh, Gentile or Jew. There's no male and female before God. And pretty soon we would learn that slavery was wrong. Their hearts would be transformed. That's how God changes society. We get saved. We realize this thing is wrong and we fight against it. I feel that way about abortion now. There was a time in the United States when slavery was legal, but it was wrong. And it took a bloody uh, time in the United States. I think, think over 600,000 men gave their lives during the Civil War. It took the, the shedding of blood to stop slavery in the United States. And I think most people today, 99%, just the weirdos who are going to say that slavery isn't wrong. We understand it. And I also believe that about abortion. I believe that that we will one day see it stopped if the Lord tarries long enough, if the God doesn't judge the world because of it, because every baby in the womb is created in the image of God. And if every baby in the womb is created in the image of God, then when you're taking that baby, you're taking its life. It's not like, it's not like taking the life of a puppy or taking the life of a baby seal, which some people, but, but that's illegal in certain parts of the world where not having an abortion isn't. And so we've just got things kind of, of, of really kind of messed up here. Um, and so that's the New Testament, the Old Testament, and slavery. I have more that I could talk about with it, um, but I don't want to dominate all of the time with our first question. So if you guys have follow-up questions about slavery, I'd love to talk about it and um, maybe even give you some more scriptures uh, that could help you, all right? So I'm going to go to back to our first question here. And I'm going to get rid of that and we will uh, take our questions. It's good to have you guys here. If you have any questions, you can write the word question down. Then you can submit the question and um, we'll take time to look at it. Our first question comes from Andre. Andre joins us from YouTube. And for some reason, I've lost, for some reason, I've lost my, let me do what I got to do here to see what's going on. Um, I think, let's see, 
Oh, that's not the right one. Let me see if I can get this to the right thing. Um, Uh-oh, I'm losing my text. Let's see if I can make this background dark, uh, lighter, and then I'll have my text. All right, there we go. So Andre says, Paul tells us all scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16. Is the, uh, if, um, if this is true, then so is Revelation 3.10. So how can anyone believe in anything other than pre-tribulation rapture? Thank you, Andre. I appreciate your question. I think the answer to this is the way, the foundations of what you believe in and you build upon it. So you wonder, why does one Christian who loves Jesus and on fire for God believe in the pre-trib rapture, and another one who loves Jesus on fire for God believes that there's not even a tribulation period, not even a millennium period? They, they believe that, that they're gonna hand the kingdom over, that we're gonna Christianize the world, it's gonna get better and better, and when Jesus returns, we're gonna hand him the kingdom and say, here it is. We took over politics, we took over the world, and here it is. Here's the reason. Uh, There are several of them. Number one is how you interpret scripture. If you are more literal in your interpretation, then you are going to be pre-trib. I could ask you a series of questions, and then I could tell you where you're at with your um, eschatology on what you believe. If you tell me, I take the Bible as literal as I can when I can, when it's, when it's obviously can't be taken literal, it's not literal. All scripture isn't literal. All prophecies in the future aren't literal. But if the Bible says there's a thousand year period, then we would believe that's a thousand year period. If the Bible says there's a thousand year period that's stretched on for 5,000, now all of a sudden we got to go, something's different about this 5,000 year period. If it says that, that um, the king went and sat down upon his throne, then we would go, all right, that's a throne. If it says, and I saw, and a king went and sat down on his throne, and his throne grew and grew and grew until it covered the entire world. That's not really a passage. I'm just using this as an example. Then we would say, well, that's not a normal throne. That's representing something else. Also, most of the Old Testament passages that were fulfilled were fulfilled literally. His son was literally called out of Egypt. He was literally born in Bethlehem. He was literally born a virgin. So all of these passages, in fact, there's only one prophecy and that's in Galatians that isn't fulfilled literally. So the more literal you take the Bible, Andre, the more you're gonna believe in a pre-trib, tribulation period and a pre-millennial. Now also what you believe about the nation of Israel. If you believe that God has cast aside the nation of Israel forever and that all the promises that God gave Israel, he's going to fulfill in the church, this is covenant theology or this is um, uh, replacement theology, then you're going to believe that, well, God's cast aside Israel. So the only people you can have in the tribulation period, when it says the 144,000, that can't be literal Jews. When it says that it was Jewish people that were persecuted by the dragon, that can't be literal Jews. When it mentions Jewish people in the Bible, you're putting the church in there because you believe in replacement theology. If you believe that God is gonna restore the nation of Israel through the tribulation period, Jeremiah 37, the time is great. It is a time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob's name was changed to Israel right? And if you believe that God is going to work in Israel and Romans 11, 25, and 26, 
Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and then they will all be saved. God said, I will never forget you, my people. I have carved you on the palms of my hand. Even if a mother forgets the child in the womb, I will never forget you. God's promised he would not forget the nation of Israel and blindness in part has happened to him. The fullness of the Gentiles will come in and then they'll all be saved. Zechariah 12.10 says, and I will pour out a spirit of mercy and grace upon Israel. And, uh, and they will uh, mourn for me as one who mourns for the only, only son when they, when they remember that they pierced me in Jerusalem. When was God, and God was speaking there by the way, in Zechariah 12.10, it's an amazing passage. It's a, it's a deity passage. When did they pierce God in Jerusalem? And so those are just two things. There's, there's a lot more. We could talk about seven foundational things. In fact, we have a video called Why Pre-Trib Rapture, which answers this question in detail. And Keith, if you're here, um, well, he's one of our mods, or, um, or Daniel, if you're here, maybe you can go to our YouTube page, type in Why Pre-Trib Rapture, and put the link in, uh, in, into for that video. And we'll put it in the show notes below afterwards to help answer this question. Because I've got seven foundations for the pre-tribulation rapture. And I'm just talking about this. What is it that makes one person interpret certain passages one way when it comes to eschatology? And what is it that makes somebody interpret passages another way? So why pre-trib rapture on our YouTube page? And um, it's, it's a hot topic, so it's a little bit shorter. And I go over five other things that make people think differently. All right, Andre, thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that. It is good having you here with us today. So we have JG. JG has a question. Uh, JG joins us from YouTube. JG says, what books, videos, or resources would you suggest for information about church history? Um, boy, um, my memory isn't what it used to be. Uh, there are some very good books and I will, I'll put them in the show notes uh, a little bit later on tonight. Let me take some time just to do a little bit of research and to stir my memory up. Sometimes going right off the top of your head is a little bit difficult, but there are some very good resources about church history that cover all the way back to the first century and then you get into you know origin and uh, polycarp uh, all of these really early guys and what they said um, there's a lot of good information and i'm really glad you're interested in that jg because i think it's really helpful a lot of the things we struggle with a lot of the things that we struggle with about the deity of christ or certain uh kinds of uh, different theologies and doctrines have already been wrestled through in church history. And you could go back and you can see how they dealt with it, how strong they dealt with it. Now, it doesn't mean they were right, but we can see that, that people were dealing with these things we're talking about hundreds of years ago. And it's such a strong resource to go back in church history, even thousands of years ago. We can go back in church history, we can see the way that they wrestled through it. And especially for the first and second century, these guys were a lot closer to the culture where we might not understand it, they understand it, and that's a positive. Again, it doesn't mean they're right. <clears throat> doesn't mean they're right. But it does mean 
uh, that we can learn a lot from the church that has already grappled with a lot of these things. There's going to be a lot of things you disagree with in church history. Remember, church history is so broad. I, I love when people make emphatic statements. They'll say things like, no one in church history ever believed in the pre-trib rapture. And by the way, that's just wrong. Again, we have, we have videos on that. It's just wrong. Well, we have videos where we talk about the people in history that did believe in a pre-trib rapture, believe they were delivered before it. The, the problem is, is you can go and you can find your own people. It'd be like me saying, no one in the Bible ever believed that you're going to go into the, I mean, no one in history ever believed you're going to go into the tribulation period. I could go and find people that, that would say my point of view. And I'd make you have to go and do your work to find people who did say that. That's exactly what they do. They claim that people don't say it, but they do, and they make you go and do the work. So studying church history, studying what the church believed is incredibly powerful and can give us move us forward so much quicker because we begin to ask questions and wonder, this, has anybody ever wrestled with this? Listen, people have gone over every word of the Bible in Greek and in Hebrew. Greek and Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, the Aramaic. Um, they have written different translations about it. They've struggled over each thing, the deity of Christ, the personhood of, of Jesus. Uh, they've gone over all of these things in church history. And so I do want to get you those resources. I'm sorry, JG, that I just can't remember off the top of my head, but there are some really good books. And also there are books that are more, that are more of an overview and books where you can really dive in. So you can go as deep into this as you want to. There are people who, Christians, pastors, theologians, who are experts uh, in church history, what they thought, what they believed, the false teachings that came out of it, even going back into the later church history of the 1800s, and you see a lot of false teachings come out of it, even the early 1900s, where you had these faith healers come up and um, they were just nothing but shysters, just stealing people's money. So there's so much interesting things in church history, and I'm really glad you're interested. And um, I will try to remember, um, maybe my wife can make me a note, um, or Keith can send me something later on today, just a text saying, remember to research the church history books, and I'll be able to get them to you. All right? Thank you, Andre, for your question. I appreciate that. Let's see. By the way, my, um, I think my time on my computer is wrong. And uh, that's why I ended uh, too soon. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. I meant to have my, my other phone here to try to figure it out, and I don't. Let me see if my... So right now it says it's 3.23, and it looks like that's what time it is. Imagine that. I'm going to look at my watch to see what time it is. All right. All right. So I'll be able to... Uh, I ended 10 minutes early on our last uh, hot um, Q&A. So, um, John, good to see you. John says, hi, family. Uh, and ty um, typing this early because of my tremors and weakness in my arms and legs. Just wanted you all to know I love you. And I pray for you daily, asking for prayers, fear not. All right, John, I see it's not a question, um, but thank you very much. And we will pray for you. Um, I'm sorry that you're going through this now. In fact, let me just pray for you now. Father, I lift up John P. now and I pray for him. 
I pray you would touch him and heal him. You are a God who heals. I pray you would heal him. I pray you would also bring him peace and comfort. Thank you for what he finds in the community of Christ, in the true koinonia. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so let's go ahead and go to our next question. Uh, so we have a question from Psychman45. Psychman, how are you? It's good to see you. He says, if a believer's sin are, sins are forgiven, what does love, why does, what does love cover, a, why does love cover a multitude of sins? No, what does love cover a multitude of sins mean? It covers already forgiven sin. All right, thank you, uh, psych man. So I think they're, they're in different areas. They're different applications. So our sins are forgiven. God's the one who forgives them. So all of my sins are forgiven by him. Now, if I have unrepentant and unconfessed sin in my life, it doesn't mean that I'm not gonna go to heaven. It doesn't mean that God hasn't forgiven my sin, but those sins can separate me from God. I step out of fellowship with God. This is what Jesus meant when he said to Peter, if I wash, if I don't wash your feet, you can have no part in me. And Peter's like, my head and my hands then. He goes, I don't need to wash your head and your hands. You're already clean, but I only need to wash your feet. As we walk in this world, we sin and we need to be forgiven. And we need to ask him to forgive us. And that's why daily he said, forgive us our, we were to pray in the Lord's prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those we trespass against, who trespass against us. So we are to forgive people and we are to understand that we're forgiven. Jesus said, if someone asks you, if someone offends you seven times and asks you for forgiveness seven times in a day, then forgive them. Here, there seems to be a hinge on them asking for forgiveness, repenting, asking you for, to, for, for forgiveness. And that is because forgiveness and restoration can be two different things or complete forgiveness. So if I offend you and I go to you and I say, I'm sorry, and you decide, I don't want to have, have a relationship with you anymore. You can forgive me and not necessarily be restored. You might pray about it. I hope you would. But if I offend you and I don't go to you and say, I'm sorry, then you forgive me. You got to let it go because it's, you, it's your bitterness. You've got to let it go. And love covers a multitude of sins. See, one of them is God forgiving all of my sins and then me having to make things right with him. The other one is between you and me. And I have to forgive you. You have to forgive me. We means we let it go. We might not restore things until there's an understanding. Jesus said again in another place, when you go to give your offering and you give it and you remember that you haven't forgiven someone, then forgive them before you give your gift. It has nothing to do with repentance. You have to let it go. And so this is a nuanced topic. And sometimes we like to make things black and white. There's forgiveness from God. There's forgiveness to meet other people. There's forgiveness from other people to me. There's true repentance. There's restoration after there has been a break. And so love covers a multitude of sins means we walk together in love. And if I offend you or you offend me, then love covers a multitude of sins because we're walking in love and we're willing to forgive. I love when someone has offended me and I let it go. And then years later, they come up and say, listen, I did this and we, we had this thing. I'm so sorry. And I love that I have totally forgot about it until they say it. And I'll tell them that too. I'd forgotten completely about that. I didn't remember it at all because it tells me that I really let it go. 
That's one of the signs. And then when you remember it again or you start to get bitter about it again or you start to get angry about it again, then you have to go back to God. God, I'm sorry I'm being unforgiving. You've forgiven me so much and I need to forgive this. When someone's done something really, really bad to you, if there's been, um, if your father was abusive, physically abusive, my father was, and, he, and he's passed away, really, truly hard to let it go. But I've forgiven him completely because love covers a multitude of sins. You may have someone who is molested by, by someone else. You will never restore that relationship. I would think you would never restore it unless God does something amazing. But you can forget, you have to forgive them. You have to let it go. It doesn't mean that what they did was okay. It doesn't mean that you ever have to have them over to your house or, or see them. You can say, I don't want to see you. You get to choose that. You can make those decisions. Um, so the concept of forgiveness, psych man, is very nuanced and has all of these different angles. And I don't see these things as contradictory at all. Um, all of our sins are forgiven and love covers a multitude of sins. One of them is God from us and the other one is us interacting with one another and the necessity to be able to forgive. Thank you very much for your question, psych man. It's good to have you here. So um, I've got another question. I've, I've reset up my studio here and I'm kind of learning some of the things that I've got to change. Um, one of them is that my, my monitor is too far away from me right now and I'm having a little bit of trouble seeing the comment section. So I'll fix that in the future. So if you see me squinting and wondering, is that a question or not, you know why. Um, so Alex says, good to see you, Alex, by the way. Um, hello, pastor. Can you explain how we can view or use the, our experiences or testimonies of others. I know we shouldn't use them as doctrine, but they are lessons learned, i.e. in spiritual warfare. All right, so I'm trying to figure out exactly what you're asking, uh, Alex. I think you're asking if somebody has an experience with someone who is possessed and they gain, the, the, the demon leaves, and it's not scripture. And they go and they write a book now, and this happens. They go and they write a book now saying, um, this is how you cast out demons. And it's not biblical at all. It's like you, um, you know, like one guy claimed that he had a gift to be able to see demons hanging on to people and that Christians couldn't be possessed, but demons were clinging on to them. They were clinging on to their mind and therefore uh, the demon had influence over their mind or they were clinging on to their hands. Therefore, they had influence over their hands. And whether he was saying he literally could see them there and they were literally hanging on or if they were just affecting Christians there, but none of that is biblical. The Bible says we sin when we are enticed. And, I, and we're not supposed to give place to the devil. So sin opens up the door and gives place to the enemy and gives place to the devil. So, not everything that is, is true is written in the Bible. Now, now, listen to my statement. Everything in the Bible is true, but not everything that is true is written in the Bible. For example, there's a lot of information about physics or medicine today you can never find in the Bible. So, someone could say, uh, this helped me. I um, this is my personal experience and it helped me. But I have to, as I'm listening to someone, 
make a difference between what is the Word of God and what is their personal experience. And I put much more weight on the Word of God, but I may very well be helped by someone. Someone may talk to me about the way they face temptation. And I hear that and go, I think that's really helpful. I think if I do that, and it's nothing in the Bible, it's just something in their own life of how they've been able to overcome temptation, then that's really good and it might be able to help me do it as long as it isn't against the Bible. So much when it comes to spiritual warfare, so much of it is unbiblical. And I heard someone say once there's two extremes, either people who look everywhere for demons or believe that demons are nowhere. Somewhere in between that, there is a balance. We are wrestling against flesh and blood. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. I'm quoting scriptures now. Um, Behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will by any means hurt you. If anyone is in Christ, he doesn't sin, and the evil one cannot touch him. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against you that we are to flee temptation. All of those are biblical when it comes to spiritual warfare. Put on your armor and then stand and pray. So there's so many things that are biblical. Why do I need your experience that you said, you know, be gone 20 times and the demon left? Or, or you said, I command you demon to be gone 20 times. I'd have an, I have an issue with that. People do that. I have authority because I'm in Christ and I tell the devil to go. Yeah, but remember that Michael wouldn't even say, wouldn't even rebuke the devil, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Jesus said, get the stronger than the strong man to drive out the strong man. If I were to fight against any demonic force, the weakest demon that is out there, I will lose. Therefore, I'm so glad that God has put a hedge of protection around me and that I call out to Jesus. Greg Laurie said, when the devil knocks on my door, I send Jesus to answer it because Jesus is the stronger than the strong man that can do away with them. So I hope that's helpful. I'm not saying no one has experiences when it comes to spiritual warfare that could be helpful, that aren't biblical or in the Bible, that are extra biblical. Is that the right term? I'm simply saying this is an area where there's a lot of false teaching. People get fascinated about it and they wanna know more and more and there's so many false teachings around spiritual warfare that um, I think it's important for us to have clarity. One of the best books that I ever, ever read on spiritual warfare, well, I think was called Spiritual Warfare by Warren Wiersbe. And um, again, I'll look it up. I'm gonna have to go back and remember, I should have a notepad here uh, where I can uh, write down everything that I wanna put in the show notes. It's just a small little book, but it's the best spiritual warfare book that I've ever read. So just look up A Spiritual Warfare by Warren Wiersbe. Uh, uh, If I remember, I'll put it in the show notes, but if I don't, just look up, again, it's just a little book. It's so easy to read, but he talks about the temptation of Eve, the temptation of, of Jesus. He talks about, um, the spiritual warfare passages that are in the Bible. And it is the, the greatest clarity uh, for a lot of the fogginess that happens around the whole concept and idea of spiritual warfare. Thank you very much, Alex. I really appreciate your question. I'm gonna go ahead and uh, grab our next one here. Uh, we have Jari. Jari joins us from YouTube. Uh, Jari says, Philemon was Onesimus's slave. 
or an employee that couldn't pay off his debt. It says he ran away from his master. Thank you. Um, yeah, so the passages that I was reading about indentured servants and illegal to kidnap um, and, and that you have to let him go in within six years and that his family could go with him and that when he went, you couldn't send him away poor. All of those are the Old Testament. Those were all Leviticus, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. And there's more. I mean, and I wish I had my book with me here, but Paul Copan's book, Is God a Moral Monster?, has a whole section on slavery. And a lot of the information that I have on it, I got because I read through his book and then took notes and put, you know, cut out the scriptures and, and put them in a note on my phone about slavery. Uh, and anytime that I come up, come across the passage while I'm reading, I, I clip it and I save it to my, my note on slavery, which is what you guys were looking at when I was reading those passages. In the New Testament, which is Philemon and Onesimus, that doesn't apply. We're talking about Roman slavery. We're talking about people that had property. In the Old Testament, they couldn't have property. The Roman system, and I don't know a lot about the Roman system of slavery, so I want to be careful what I say, but I believe it was chattel slavery. That is that, and, and again, chattel meaning property. I believe it was that. You owned that person in the Roman system. And so Philemon is a great little book that you mentioned, Jari. And I love that Paul asks for his freedom. And Paul says, you can do whatever you want to do. I, you, you don't have to do what I say, but I want you to know that you owe me. Remember that you owe me. And I love it. It's like Paul is saying, hey, I've, I've, somehow Paul had helped him spiritually and Paul's asking him a favor. Onesimus escaped. Paul found him. He came to Christ. Paul sent him back with a letter from Paul asking for his freedom. It's a great little postcard in the Bible. It's one of the smaller um, books of the Bible, but Philemon is so incredible. If you've never read it, take time to read it, and it deals with the issue of slavery. And um, when we do a, a message on slavery, we'll actually go through the book of Philemon, and we'll talk about the Old Testament and New Testament um, passages. I'll also have a hot topic on slavery that won't connect to Philemon, but we'll talk about Philemon at some point in another hot topic because it's so good. So thank you very much, Jari. I appreciate that. Let's go ahead and take another question. Uh, we have a question from Marty. Uh, good to see you, Marty. Um, you got yourself a fish there? Got yourself a largemouth bass? Is that, no, no, you got yourself a trout? Is that what I'm seeing? I can only see a, a little picture of it. Uh, so good to see you, Marty. Marty says, does Luke 19.11 parable speak of the judgment seat of Christ? Is the judgment seat an actual judgment on us? Some have said, uh, when we get rewards. All right, so let me go ahead and pull up uh, Luke 9.11. So, uh, Luke 19, sorry, Luke 19.11, right? Luke 19, 11. Yeah, I got all this stuff too far away from me now. I need to get it in closer. All right, so here we go. Let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you. And let's take a look at it. So this is Luke 19, 11, And that was the passage that you talked about. Right, Marty? Okay, yeah, Luke 19, 11. Good. So let's go back to it. So it says, this is the parable of the minus, 
and this is something we're going to be in pretty soon. We're covering the last section of Luke 18 tonight where Jesus heals the blind man and it is a it is a picture a foreshadowing of salvation. And that's really powerful. And um, so let's read this and then I'm going to go back to your question so that I can see what your question is, Marty, and we'll look at it. Um, now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable to them. He was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately, therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country and received for himself a kingdom and a kingdom and to return. So he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10 minas and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. So it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. They then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas. And he said to him, well done, good and faithful servant, because you were faithful in very little, have authority over 10 cities. And the second came said, Master, my mina has earned five minas. So um, the minas would be money, by the way, I'm pretty sure. Um, I'll be looking this up and doing a whole study on it pretty, yeah, here pretty soon. Um, and sometimes the word talent is used and you've got the parable of the talents, which is slightly different than this. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept and put away uh, in a handkerchief, for I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect where you do not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. So that's enough of that. I'm going to explain the rest of it to you um, and then we'll come back to the question. Um, and so the master says, you knew I was austere. You knew that I reaped where I didn't sow. You should have at least invested it and I, that I would have gotten back with interest. And so this is the idea that God gives each one of us talents and that we, got, we have to be faithful with those talents God's given us. And some people, these guys all received the same amount, but they did different things with it. And there was a reward that was, was five for five and 10 for 10. And yeah, I do believe that this is talking about the Bema seat judgment, Marty, where um, God's gonna stand us before him. He's gonna look at all the things we've done and then he's going to look at our motives. And when we've done things to be seen by men, when we've done things in order to gain something from it, then that's going to be burned up, wood, hay, and stubble. And all that will remain is that which we did genuinely. And that's why Jesus said, when you do your good works, do them in such a way that people give glory to God. Instead of people saying, wow, Robert's really amazing. Look at what he did. If I'm doing it for that reason, I'll lose it. The truth is that pastors, a, a lot of what they're doing is in front of people and people are going, good, good job. Well done. And the Bible, Jesus said, Hey, you'll lose your reward. If people are just saying, well job. And, and, and you know, that if that's what you're looking for, then you're not going to get a reward for that because that is your reward. You better really enjoy that praise from the lips of people for the things you're doing. Cause that's the reward you get. God knows the heart. And that's why we need to go out of, the way, out of the way to do things in secret. Jesus said, when you, when, um, when you give money, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. When you do your good works, do it in secret so that your father who sees will reward you openly. 
When you pray, go in your prayer closet and pray. Don't stand and pray just to be seen by people. In fact, try to avoid that. Do it in private and your God who sees in secret will reward you openly. So, these are the kind of things that will bring us rewards in the future. Um, Marty, thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that and it's good to see you. And I believe that I'll see you here in just a little while at our service at, as well. All right. Uh, so, um, let's see, is this a follow up? Yeah, it looks like. Jari, we have, well, let's bring this in and we'll get rid of Marty. Take, get rid of you, Marty. Uh, and we have a question from Jari. Oh, he says, future QA, a follow up. Could we ever? We have another civil war or some kind of warfare in the United States that will stop abortion similar to slavery. I hear NAR teach this. NAR. I'm not sure what NAR is. Sorry. Um, I, I kind of already think, I know you're asking about a literal civil war where there's bloodshed, but I kind of think that this, this issue is the main issue that divides our nation and that there's already a battle. There's already battlegrounds being set for this. And we could see it come unglued here pretty soon, depending on how the Supreme Court rules. Things could go back to the states and the states could make decisions about it. And so, yeah, the answer to this is you could have states. Remember when Lincoln was vocally against slavery and he ran on the platform in 62, I think, 1862, 1860 maybe. He ran on the platform that the new territories were not going to be slave states. So he didn't run on a platform that he was going to stop slavery, although he openly condemned it. And so people knew when he got, became president that slavery was going to be in danger now. And it was the economic machine of the South. And so immediately Virginia moved away from the nation, succeeded away from the nation. And then other states followed after them because they were slave states. And that caused a civil war because now if you're going to succeed, then there was a civil war to make sure they didn't. So what if, you know, there's a proposal that there would be a state called Cascadia. That's Washington, Oregon, and the northern part of California, the Cascades. And Cascadia would be a place they would succeed and they would make their own nation. They would declare that they would be their own nation. We hear this from Texas, that Texas has in their laws that they can become their own nation, that they can break away from the United States. So that's kind of on the other side of what Cascadia would be. Would we today, would we today go to war to keep someone from succeeding like Abraham Lincoln did? I don't know. We seem to not have much of a taste for war these days. And I probably think we wouldn't. I think that we would see things succeed and the United States break apart. And maybe not. Maybe I'm I'm wrong about that. Yeah, again, I'm yeah, I not really well informed on what would happen if the United States were to break up. But remember, that's what caused the Civil War. So yeah, I do think that we're gonna see some really ugly things. And it may be the United States threatening to break up over this issue. I think this is the main issue that's, that, that people care about. And it seems on both sides. All right. So thank you, Jari, for that follow-up question on what we were talking about a little bit earlier. Uh, we have another question here. 
joining us from, it looks like uh, YouTube. Hi, Pastor Robert. Does everyone have to hear the gospel before the rapture? I'm going to say no to that. Remember that God has given two testimonies of himself. One of them is creation. So that people look at creation and there must be a creator. If you have creation, you've got a creator. So you look at the world around you and you go, it's too complex for it to just have happened. Um, even evolutionists today, uh, there's a book called Darwin's Black Box. It's a few years old now, but they talked about the fact that there's problems in evolution and evolution as we've been taught can't be true. These are guys that are not Christians. These are guys who are evolutionists or who are non-Christians saying what you say about the way the world came about can't be true because for their reasons, things are too complex. What, what we would have to see in, in biology, we don't see. There are certain animals that couldn't have evolved based on, um, based on the, the properties of evolution as they are taught. And so, um, that there's nature that God reveals himself in. And then it says that God has put in each, each person's heart that God is real. And so that's the light that God's given everyone. And how they respond to that light, the less light you have, the less you're going to be punished. The more light you have, the more you're going to be punished. So people who hear the gospel and reject it, are punished in a greater way than someone who hasn't heard the gospel. Now, this causes people to say things like, well, then maybe we shouldn't go tell anybody about Christ then if, if they're going to be punished more severely. But wait a minute, that takes heaven off the picture for them. The more people that we go and share with, the more people we preach to, the more people come into the kingdom of God. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. That's a promise that we are going to be successful. Could someone respond properly to the light they have? believe that there's a God, believe in a, in a God who, and, and believe in their inner and, and, and respond positively to that inner light that's been given to them. And could they make it to heaven by the blood of Jesus? No one's saved except for Christ. And an example of that would be Abraham. Abraham in the Old Testament believed God. God spoke to him, gave him revelation. He believed God and it was accounted to him righteousness. It was accredited righteousness. He didn't know Jesus, but it was accredited to him righteousness. So how many people are out there? Maybe Romans 1 tells us there's very few or maybe even none who would hear the message of the gospel, who would, who would not hear the message of the gospel, but would make it in because they believed God and responded positively to the light that they were given. I think that that's a possibility, all right? Um, and no, the gospel will be preached all around the world. That's what Jesus said is really the sign for his return. And then the gospel will be preached around the world and then the end will come. And angels during the tribulation period go and proclaim the gospel. We're the proclaimers of the gospel now, but the church will be gone. So God will have angels proclaiming the gospel during the tribulation period. So the answer to that is no, the gospel doesn't have to be preached to every person before uh, Jesus returns. That does have to be preached around the world. And whether or not that's been fulfilled at this point is a matter of debate. All right, so thank you very much.
I, I appreciate your question and I appreciate you guys. I'm gonna have to look at my watch to see. All right, we got another seven or eight minutes here. Uh, we have a question from Lisa. Lisa joins us uh, from, it looks like Facebook. Um, Lisa says, question, what happens to the earth when Jesus returns? A lot, a lot happens to the earth when Jesus returns. So if you're talking about his actual return, so the beginning of his second coming is in two phases. He comes first church. He doesn't come to the earth then. He comes in the clouds and raptures the people to him, gathers them together. And then they, we go to heaven for seven years, have the marriage supper of the lamb, have the Bema seat judgment. All of those things will take place while the earth is going through the tribulation period. Then Jesus returns to the earth and he reigns, rules and reigns for a thousand years. And during this millennium period, I believe the thorns and thistles will be gone. The curse of the, uh, by the sweat of your brow, the earth producing for you will be gone. And Jesus will rule and reign for a thousand years. And we're going to rule and reign with him. He gave dominion to Adam and Eve. That's reign to rule and reign over the earth and over the animals. But they gave up that dominion when they wanted to be like God and they fell into sin. And so now Satan has the dominion of the earth. He is the God of this world. And then we'll get all of that back. And God wanted us people, men and women, to rule and reign with him. And we're going to rule and reign in the future. Somehow, so much so that we're even going to judge angels. Whatever that means. Which is pretty amazing. And at the end of that, Satan will be released. There will be a war that's referred to as a Gog and Magog war. I think it's different than the Gog and Magog war in 38 and 30, Ezekiel 38 and 39. But... Gog and Magog are, are leaders or an area with a leader. So it's another leader. So there's two Gogs, like there could be two kings. And then there will be one more rebellion. Jesus will quash that. Then there'll be the great white judgment throne. And the books will be opened. And the rest of the dead will be resurrected to the second death. There's the first resurrection which is everyone who is resurrected, including Jesus, including those resurrected before the rapture, those resurrected after the rapture, and then those resurrected uh, who knew Christ out in the millennium, who died during the millennium, and then all of those who were resurrected to that eternal death, and they will be judged. And then they'll be thrown into Hades, and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. And that's hell. The earth will be then destroyed and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and it talks about no more sea in that new heaven and new earth or maybe it talks about that during the millennium period but there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and uh the new jerusalem will come down from heaven and we will we will live out in perfect joy in perfect peace in perfect communion with the living god remember that eternal life is not just time Eternal life is quality. And there's this quality of life that we will have in his presence, living with him forever. So that's a quick rundown, Lisa, of what the Bible says is going to happen to the earth um, when Jesus returns after the tribulation period. Looks like we have time for another question. So thank you very much, Lisa, for your question. Thank you for joining us. And all of you guys who may be new here, who haven't asked questions before, it's good to see you. I see Daniel here, hello, Daniel. I appreciate that, um, that you're here. And uh, Keith, I assume, is here as well. 
Uh, yep, there you are, Keith. Uh, good to see you. Those are our mods. Good to see you guys. Uh, looks like I may have missed some questions today. If I did that, I'm sorry. Hopefully, you can get them. Uh, you can get them asked again uh, later on. I think I was kind of making my way down here. Um, if you're joining us, say hi. We'd love to see um, who's joining us, who's here with us um, on our Truth Quest podcast. And I'm just taking time now to scroll through here and see the questions. Again, I've, you can see I've changed the way the studio was set up a little bit and I'm standing instead of sitting. So I've gotten everything reestablished here. And one of the things I've done is I have my monitor too far away from me. So I'm having trouble seeing when it's small. Oh, maybe I can make this bigger. Let me just mess around with this for a minute while you guys are standing by. Hey, look at that. I can make it bigger. I just had to think things through. All right, so that's that's a lot better. That works really good. So if you have a question, then you can write the word question down um, or a question mark in front of it, submit it, and we'll take time uh, to be able to cover it. If we don't have another question here now, we'll go ahead and end the broadcast uh, podcast but I really do appreciate you guys. And if I did skip over your question, I'm really sorry about that. It's coming in from several places and my print was really small in the comment section. So I was having trouble seeing it, but it is good to have you guys here. And here is a question from please stop judging people. This will be our last question for the day. It's been good for you guys to join us. If you are here, say hi. We'd love to, to, see, to see who's here and who's watching. Thank you for joining us. Um, and so stop judging people. I love the name. Says, uh, people in the 1800s and early 1900s have been waiting for the rapture and uh, rapture. Are we naive thinking it is coming soon? Will there be flying cars, uh, powder food, more ugliness before the expected rapture? And the answer to that is yes, it is possible that we are getting it wrong. If, if I were alive with what I know about the Bible during World War II, the Nazis killing Jewish people, I, I, I would have thought this is the end. This is the Antichrist. This is the end. And certainly Hitler was an Antichrist, but not the Antichrist. Um, if I was alive in 1948 when Israel became a nation, which I wasn't alive, but if I was, I would think this could be it. The generation that sees the fig tree will not pass away until all these things take place. I'd think that was it. Um, if I was alive in 67 during the Six Day War or 73 during the Yom Kippur War in Israel, both of those were in Israel, then I would think we are very close. This is it. Today, I look at the world, I think we're very close. And I do think that, but I wanna be careful because what if it's 50 years or 100 years? What if he doesn't come back for 1,000 years? I mean, it's possible. And yeah, we would see all kinds of technology. Look at the way technology is going. And Daniel says, I think this is a sign of the time that men will go to and fro on the earth and knowledge will increase. And we're just seeing the increase of knowledge now at an incredible rate. Not only are we gonna see things like you're talking about here, but maybe even more scary things like humans that have been genetically altered I, there's, I understand, again, I don't know much about these things, but I understand that they're testing being able to genetically alter humans with some kind of chimpanzee connection because chimpanzees are like six times stronger than people. And so you could make a superhuman by doing this. I think these things are probably already being tried. 
Um, I think cloning, I think, um, I think there's a lot of things that we could talk about that really are going to cause a problem as whether or not these things are ethical in the future if the Lord waits. Um, but what about, um, and I heard someone talk about this recently, what, what if we're telling people Jesus is coming back right now, this is it, and it goes on for another 20 years? Well, in Calvary Chapel, we kind of have that. Chuck believed that Jesus was going to come back in 1981. Now, he did say, I'm not setting the date. I'm not saying that's going to be it. But he said, if, if we get past 1980, I'll be surprised. And he gave his reasons why he thought that 81 was going to be it. It was that Israel became a nation of 48. 88 would be 40 years. A biblical generation is 40 years. And then you subtract seven years for the rapture. He believed it was happening in 1981. Um, I, in 81, I was 21 years old. And I had was listening to Chuck Smith a lot back in then, back then. I wasn't yet going to Calvary. I wouldn't go to Calvary until the next year in 82. Uh, but I was very involved with listening to Pastor Chuck's teachings. And here I am, I'm 21 years, 22 years old when I when that's supposed to happen. Here I am a lot of years later and it hasn't happened. So I take that as a lesson that I want to be careful. I'm, I, I believe Jesus could come back at any minute. I believe we're seeing uber birth pains happening now. They're getting more intense and closer together. But God desires that all would be saved and all would come to the knowledge of the truth. God's not slack concerning his promises, right? And so God might want more people to get saved. And if so, then good. I would like to be a part to be changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye, to not die, that mystery of who's not going to die in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'd love to be a part of that. But I would also like to see more people saved. And I would gladly give up a part of that and have some kind of a painful death than to see them not come to Christ. So I want to have the heart that God wants to have. And I am looking forward to the return of Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm watching for him. I'm waiting for him. But if it doesn't happen for another 200 years, I wouldn't be surprised. Or however long it is that God has it. The world may be radically different. It's gone through a lot of periods where people thought it. So um, your question here, in the 18 and 1900s, they were waiting. Not only were they waiting, they set dates. They realized, a lot of cults realized that if you talk about prophecy, you talk about Jesus returning, if you set a date, you can fire people up. And they set dates and Jesus didn't come back. You have the great disappointment in the 1800s. You have the cults, the Millerite cults that came out of uh, setting dates and talking about prophecy. And, you know, it's tempting. It's tempting to be all about prophecy because people listen to it and they respond. We just had a prophecy conference at our church. We had Mark Hitchcock, Ed Henson, uh, Gary Hamrick, um, Skip Heitzig, and they all shared on prophecy. And it was our most watched prophecy. I mean, our most watched conference. We've been doing them for 20 years, pastors and leadership conferences. We do the Calvary Chapel Southwest Pastors and Leadership Conference at our church. We've been doing it for a long time, since the since 2001 or 2002, so 20 years of them. And never have we had response, even when we did Daniel, like we have on this prophecy conference. Maybe it's part of what the world's going on, but the temptation is, well, then I'm going to be all about prophecy, because if people are going to be more people that would listen, then I'm going to be all about prophecy. The problem is, you're trying to build something, and God's trying to reach people. If you're just going to cover a topic because you go, I more people respond to that. So 
I want a bigger kingdom here. I want to reach more people. I want to be better known. The Bible says do nothing from selfish ambition. So if you're doing prophecy like the cults do it, take a warning from the cults. They do a lot of prophecy because they know it gets people. That's prophecy is not evil. It's good. It's good to cover it. I'm looking forward to Luke 21. We're going to be there. I don't know a year. No, I don't know how many months we're in Luke 19 right now. It'll be a while, but we're going to go slow through it. And that's going to be good. So when you're there, when the Bible talks about it, don't ignore it, but also don't make everything you do about prophecy. If you're a pastor, now there are ministries that are prophecy ministries and, and that's okay. I'm not saying anything bad about that. I'm just saying, let's not just get overwhelmed with prophecy because the cults did it. Um, there were, there was a great disappointment where a lot of people sold everything that they had, believed Jesus was coming back at a certain date, and then he didn't come back. And it caused a lot of problems. All right, so thank you guys very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Um, we're making some changes to the studio. We've got some new changes that are coming that I think are gonna make things uh, a little bit better. Now, this will be the studio that we use in the future to cut our hot topics in. Um, and I'm making some changes, so bear with me while I make them. Really good to see you guys. I love you. Uh, stay close to Christ. I hope that uh, God really blesses you. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and sign out now. 